Kara Boyd, welcome to Hemp Barons, and thank you so much for being with us this week. Thank you for having me. You are a prolific woman of valor, a woman of power, and a human being of tremendous conviction. Uh, the amount of work that you have accomplished and that you continue to accomplish with a number of populations within uh, the minority and people of color uh, demographic is truly phenomenal. We're talking the, of course, uh, National Black Farmers Association, the Association of American Indian Farmers, the National Women's Farming Association, We Grow Farmers, and of course the Boyd Institute. I, we want to tell the listeners about each of these organizations. What is, is fascinating to me and something that I really want us to impress upon the listeners is that each of these associations and these nonprofit endeavors um, have been born from a lawsuit, a legal battle. If we could take them one by one and if we could start with National Black Farmers Association, how was National Black Farmers Association born into the world? The National Black Farmers Association was created as a result of the black farmers, you know, being discriminated against by USDA. Uh, my husband led that effort. Uh, he and uh, several other members founded the organization, and he is the only remaining uh, founder. And that was in the early 1990s. He actually received a settlement um, after having several pages of findings of discrimination, racial discrimination um, from USDA. And then they went on to file the class action lawsuit, uh, and that was certified as a class. And after the settlement, there were over 83,000 black farmers who came forward and said they had missed the filing deadline. And so that lawsuit was uh, called Pit the Pickford lawsuit. And class actions are often named uh, or became known or you know, for um, the lead plaintiff. So you'll have lead plaintiffs and class actions. And they had traveled throughout the South filing this case in uh, the different states. And when they got to Virginia, uh, Timothy Pickford was the lead plaintiff when they filed the case in Virginia. And so the class action lawsuit became Pickford versus uh, Glickman, Dan Glickman, who was the secretary of USDA. And when they went for the second uh, round of applications, it took many, many years because uh, they had to have the statute of limitations lifted because there's a two-year limit um, on those program complaints. And that took an act of Congress, and then they were able to proceed. And then they went with those late filings, had a second round, and that is known as NRA Black Farmers Discrimination. The deadline to file in that case was May of 2012, and that case is now closed and settled. Um, so that was the black farmers discrimination case. And, you know, after two settlement agreements, you, you would think that uh, USDA um, would be doing better. Um, there are some improvements, but, you know, there's still much more to be done. And what I can say is as a result of the discrimination cases and all the findings, no one was ever fired or reprimanded. So it makes you, you know, which is outrageous. Yeah, that the culture is still there. The Pigford case, of course, is within the movement, a groundbreaking precedent setting case. And it is amazing to me. Uh, and, and my hope is that we'll be able to continue to 
throw uh, that case, those findings, that order, the, the set of facts within that case, which I just think are so egregious, it, it, it needs to continually be um, educated and put forth into uh, the public's awareness and the public's consciousness. And we're seeing a lot of mentions um, of, we, you know, you probably uh, recently saw a great article that came out last month, Hemp Farming While Black. Um, and then, of course, and Leah Penniman, among many others, were, were were, uh, featured in that article. She wrote, of course, uh, Farming While Black. And we're starting to see more mentions of, of the Pigford case reemerge, re I think, in the public consciousness. But that it, it, the education that needs to go on on what the history is here and the fact that, as you say, underscoring uh, that the remedial action that really was the intent of the order of that case has not been yet realized. Definitely. And so what my husband realized is they were moving forward with the black farmers case, that if this had happened to the black farmers, it probably happened to the other minority farmers. And so they, when they wrote the statute of limitations, they included the other races, the other minorities. So it wasn't just solely for African-American farmers. And so they went out and they found the other plaintiffs um, and the Native American case became known as Keepsiegel. And uh, Mr. Keepsiegel became ill and his, his name's George Keepsiegel and his wife, Marilyn Keepsiegel um, took over and uh, they were class representatives. And those are the things that as I think they move forward uh, with the class action and they learned, you know, like they say, hindsight is 2020, um, that they actually had class representatives where the black farmers case didn't have quote named um, class representatives. And so by the time they got to the women's case, which is Love versus uh, Vilsack, and the Hispanic case, which is Garcia, which was named after Lupe Garcia um, versus Vilsack, um, those two cases were settled voluntarily. They were never certified as a class. And they used the same pay structure to basically uh, do a voluntary settlement with those farmers. However, um, the review process you know, left a lot to be um, looked at because very few women actually were successful through that claims process. And so, you know, it's just really sad um, that it took that, those findings are there. And as they moved through USDA and they created programs, um, because one of the things that the black farmers documented was the length of time that it was taking to process their applications over 366 days. So now when you go to USDA and you see the sign, which you're probably not going to see it, you may have to look for it, um, is a receipt of service. And what the receipt of service does is it starts the ticker. It starts the clock ticking when you go in and request a service so that it validates when you went in, what your request was, and how long it takes the agency to respond. And so, you know, we worked very hard to put in uh, policy and to put in programs such as the 2501 socially disadvantaged uh, outreach uh, programs into place to assist farmers. And, you know, we just really hope and that things will continue to go forward right now during this administration. It's very hard because we don't have an assistant secretary of civil rights. Uh, Naomi Earp was the acting or deputy um, secretary of 
Assistant Secretary of Civil Rights, and she wasn't able to get confirmed. And so what this administration has done when they had contra controversial uh, appointees, um, that they would place them as acting so they could avoid um, you know, having to pick someone else and they could put the person in to do the work without confirmation. And I mean, it just seems like, you know, that these things should not be happening. And she eventually um, resigned. And, and as you know, that is going on with this particular administration throughout basically every branch and department of government, those types of, of improper techniques uh, to, to implement uh, political um, uh, advantage or political gain. May I ask you this, and I want to make sure that the that the listeners know that when we talk about the defendants in these cases that you're that you're mentioning here, and we say things like the defendant Billsack, we're talking about uh, basically the secretary of the Department of Agriculture, though that is the defendant at all, uh, mm -hmm. and the department itself, of course. May I ask you, Kara? You, you said that at the time uh, during the Pigford case, it was taking sometimes upwards of 366 days, over a year for a simple application. Talk about structural racism uh, to be approved. What is the length of time now when we talk about what, what the receipt of service, starting that clock ticking? Because as a result of these litigations, what is the length of time now that the USDA has to, uh, to execute an application and determine an answer? That should be uh, happening within 45 to 60 days. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very challenging. You know, you would think some common sense practices uh, would be in place. Um, and when I say that is you would think at USDA, if you were putting a, a farm loan, it would say loan. It doesn't. It says request for assistance. <sighs> You know, and so, you know, you have to put in the forms and real estate and, you know, purchasing land um, is challenging within itself. And oftentimes a realtor will not put in an offer on a property unless they have a pre-approval. Well, at USDA, you can't get a pre-approval. So you're almost like working against yourself and behind the clock um, because oftentimes developers want these farms. They want this land. Um, and so for the farmer who's trying to expand their operation or for a family that's trying to hold on to land because uh, it's being sold or a for sale because of probate or tax issues, um, these are the things that are still challenging with trying to uh, utilize USDA farm lending, even though they have the best practices. I mean, best programs, I guess I should say they don't have the best practices, but they do have the best programs. Um, so for our individuals to go to them, we want to be able to go to them and to utilize these programs. Now, what is the, you had mentioned, of course, uh, the the tribal or the Native American case that came along. And, and I, I want to make sure that I understand that was, of course, analogous of, of the Pigford suit. But was that also the case then that inspired the birthing, your birthing into the world of the Association of American Indian Farmers? Or was that a different litigation? It, it was. And what happened very similar to the Black Farmer case um, is that after the fouling deadline, uh, several thousand Native American farmers came forward um, and said they had missed the fouling deadline. So we also had late fowlers. And what had happened with the black farmers is they were able to go back to Congress and they got a second round. 
Well, they didn't have any money, so then they had to get more money. So not only did they get a second round of applications, they also got additional monies because all their monies had been paid out um, from the initial settlement. When it came to the Native American farmers, there was an estimate, uh, an estimate that was put together of maybe 10,000 claimants. And they roughly got around maybe five, and I think that was due to very poor outreach. Um, and so out of the $760,000 that was allocated, 760 million, I'm sorry, that was allocated to pay those farmers, only about 380 uh, was actually paid out. And so you had 380 million left. And so you would think that they would do a second round of applications and they said, no, $380 million, <laughs> we're not going to do a second round of applications. And so that's why I formed, uh, and Dr. Boyd, my husband, helped me form um, the Association of American Indian Farmers. And I had a hashtag, uh, pay the farmers, um, tell Joe no, no trust and keep Siegel. And I just really couldn't understand is every time that it comes to Native Americans, they want us to have a trust because they feel like we can't handle the money. So they wanted it to be like in this perpetual fund. So they were going to put this by, because the interest was growing on these money. So um, by the time we were going through um, the appeals court, it was over 400 million. And so they wanted to create this Keep Siegel Trust and they wanted to loan it back out to the farmers, you know, create CDFIs and, you know, fund uh, institutions. And I'm like, how can that be when they aren't the ones that have been discriminated? The farmers were discriminated. The farmers lost the land. The farmers lost their farms and their trucks and they struggled. And they could use this money, you know, to, to regain some of those things and to build their operations. And I lost. The money went into a um, into the trust fund. It's known as the Native American Agriculture Fund. And what really bothered me is because it was almost as if the fox was now, you know, watching, setting up in the hen house, the straight hen out in the hen house. Yes, because Jamie Hip, who was the tribal, uh, who was the appointee for the Office of Tribal Relations at USDA left USDA, went to a university and became the point of contact for Keep Siegel Class Council. Wow. Okay. So and it was like, follow the money, you know, and then she becomes the chair of this organization. And of course, I love the Native American agriculture. Yes. And I apologize. Uh, what is the, what is the full name of that? The Native American agriculture fund. Fund. Sorry. I knew it was finance fund. Yeah. Uh, so she becomes the overseer of the Native American Agriculture Fund. Yes. And it was so heartbreaking because we had Marilyn Keepsiegel, who's on the stand there before uh, Judge uh, Sullivan. And she's telling him that she feels like she has a gun on her signing this. She does not want this trust fund. They want the money to go back out to the farmers. They want a second round. The uh, African-American farmers got a second round with no money. Native American farmers had $400 million and could not get a second round of applications. And it's just a travesty. It was such a, you know, an injustice. And so I asked to be put on the board for the Native American Agriculture Fund, of course, I was denied. Um, and, you know, I was like, okay, you know, well, at least all I can do is advocate. And so now they have these grant writing cycles and they're giving out maybe 20 million. But at the same time, this money's sitting there, you know, drawing interest. And these people, 
you know, which Ms. Keepsiegel referred to them as the suits, are still getting paid. They didn't miss a paycheck. They were getting compensated. They were they were volunteering. They were getting paid during this whole process and now still getting a check. And these farmers, you know, barely the prevailing claimants did get an additional $21,000, but the, the bulk of the money, the majority of the money uh, went into this trust fund. Beyond outrageous, a, a virtual pillaging of the funds that did not belong to them. Um, so we're talking about the, the actual victims, the subjects of the lawsuit, the the valid complainants of the lawsuit that suffered uh, financial damages instead of the money going directly to them. Essentially, it gets siphoned off into another organization where uh, employees, white employees are are paid. Right. And the money is not essentially dispersed to where it belongs. Just absolutely outrageous. And and it brings me to a question, although there we have a perfect example of there are so many circumstances that all minorities and people of color in agriculture, particularly in rural communities, as you well know, sister, struggle with and are faced with. Could you give us some distinction between the unacceptable challenges that black farmers are faced with versus the unacceptable challenges that American Indians are faced with? Anything unique and distinct there? Not that you didn't just highlight a huge one, which is we're not going to actually give you the money. You're not sophisticated enough to handle the money. Also, we're just going to continue to use you and your population as an excuse to build our own coffers. But Beyond that, anything unique or different? Well, Joy, you asked. I didn't volunteer. So, um, yes, there is um, a unique difference, and it's Indianness. It's Indian politics. And most people, probably the majority of your viewers, are not familiar with Indian status. So within the United States, we have Indian status. So we have federally recognized, state recognized, and historically uh, non-federally recognized. And I happen to be a member of a state recognized tribe, which is historically non-federally recognized. Um, I'm a member of the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina. We're the largest tribe east of the Mississippi, over 70, 80,000 strong. And in 1956, um, there's the Lumbee Act. And it says you're Indian, you're Indian, you're Indian over and over and over again until you get to the very last sentence. And it says, however, uh, because you're Lumbee Indian, you're not entitled to anything any other Indian receives because of their Indian status. What? So you're Indian, you know, but they're in the very last sentence. And it just goes to show the stroke of a pen and how the letter of the law can really kill um, you know, a people and, you know, hinder them. So we're federally recognized in name only uh, with no benefits. And I often argue that, you know, these benefits um, aren't monetary. A lot of them are protections. You know, these are our indigenous birthrights. And so when it comes to sovereignty and indigenous issues, sometimes that is a very distinct um, difference between the black farmers and the Native American farmers and that the uh, Native American farmers have the Office of Tribal Relations at USDA. And so as a Native American who's an enrolled member of a state recognized tribe, I cannot receive programs or services or benefits from that office because my tribe is not federally recognized. And there are organizations such as the Intertribal Agricultural Council that receives millions of dollars and lots of funding from the Keep Siegel 
which is now the Native American Agriculture Fund, um, to service only members of federally recognized tribe. And we have lots of Native Americans um, because of blood quantum and disenrollment and, you know, issues may not be enrolled an enrolled member of a tribe. But however, because of these politics and Indian status, they're not entitled to services. So that's why we created the Association of American Indian Farmers so that we could service all Native American uh, farmers, whether they're on or off reservation, enrolled or eligible to be enrolled in a tribe. I don't think that people, and thank you so much for highlighting that, Kara, because I don't think folks understand how many hundreds and hundreds of tribes we have across this gigantic nation and how few of them are federally recognized. In fact, the number of currently of combined state and federally recognized uh, tribes are somewhere around 574, yet we have hundreds more. And I, I'm a, a resident of the state of Washington, and uh, we have multiple, a huge tribe here, well-known uh, tribe, the Snohomish tribe has sued yeah. over and over again for federal recognition. We cannot even begin to comprehend why are you not recognizing this tribe? And they, they of course, are representative of so many others. Correct. And so that's why, you know, it's often challenging um, within that population. And when uh, a lot of black farmers are dealing with air property, we have Native American farmers on reservation that are dealing with fractionalized land and tribal owned land. Um, so determining who has the right um, to, you know, lease or farm on those properties um, can raise additional issues. And and then there's just uh, sort of the basic um, runaround and rigmarole when the when the United States government wants to be difficult. It's it's sort of like uh, kicking people while you're down. Um, not every tribe. It's very rare that we have an incredibly wealthy tribe that has the funds and thank goodness for the ones that do so they can fight but has the funds to fight these tremendous legal battles so it's just it's just an exponential disempowerment um of really the planetary healers and and the keepers of the fire um of of the earth uh that we're dealing with here what a revolution we're undergoing, and um, I remain confident. I remain confident uh, that working together, we're we're going to get there. Um, the prophecy is written, as they say, for the healing of the planet and the earth, um, and the Native American role in it. May I ask you then, moving forward through the lawsuits and uh, and just the tremendous battles that you have been really at the front seat fighting, how about the National Women's Farming Association? Let us know how that was born into the world. Well, after they did the Black farmers and then they did the Native American farmers, um, they started working on the women farmers because as they began to see, there were a lot of women um, who were also being denied access to funding and um, were being mistreated um, by the Farmers Home Administration, which changed the name to Farm, uh, Farm Service Agency. And the FSA. FSA. Um, and what is unique uh, about it is that even within the women farmers, um, there are a lot of true women farmers. And sometimes, you know, it's difficult if there are husbands who maybe are more active 
um, and actually found a way to navigate through that system by putting businesses in their wives' names um, in order to receive that preference or that, you know, meet those criteria. Um, but for those women farmers, the struggle was real. And Love versus uh, Vilsack actually, you know, was voluntarily settled. And what happened, and I'm just going to speak very candidly, uh, when the opportunity came back around under the uh, women and Hispanics. So they ended up combining the, uh, the cases. So they combined the women and the Hispanics into what is known as the women and Hispanic uh, settlement. And, Whoa. you know, uh, it was a very um, short um, lived. Uh, and like I said, just the number of cases that were that prevailed would show you that, I mean, there were just thousands that were thrown out. And the reason being is that one lady writes me and she writes me often and she really received a letter and they told her, well, you should have filed under the black farmer. She was an African-American lady. And they told her because she was black, she couldn't file under the women's lawsuit that she should have filed under the black farmer's lawsuit. And I just thought that was the most egregious, you know, um, explanation. Oh, and, you know, it's, I mean, what, what do you do? And so, you know, I, I have to say to these individuals um, who didn't prevail in the uh, class action cases, you know, not to give up, to keep going back. And, you know, it was really never about $50,000. That was a settlement. But the monies that are available at USDA, whether it's, uh, you know, rural development, 502 housing program to buy a home with no money down, if it's a scholarship, it's a, if it's a farm ownership, can far exceed the $50,000 from that settlement. And so, you know, we're still going to fight on and we don't think that, you know, things are always fair in life, but, you know, we're going to keep being persistent. And even when you look at the agriculture census. And <laughs> And, and let me ask you this. So, and were there any circumstances that were unique or different in that combined? And I'm trying to wrap my head around why they combined that. Obviously, there were some similar causes of action. Was there anything different? And could you give our listeners and me, you're such a brilliant source here of information, um, some of the, the main causes of action. Although, you know, unless they're just so obvious that I could actually say them like denying loans, uh, taking too long to answer applications. That was it. They were exactly the same. They were the same findings. Got it. Um, farmers had the same documentation. Things were happening to, to them. And it's really sad because Lupe Garcia, we honored him at our conference in 2014 and he passed away before ever even receiving a settlement. You know, and so these are the things oh. that really just, you know, touch your heart. And, you know, when things get tough, you kind of think about all the ones that have gone on. And we think about, you know, Martin Luther King. We think about Malcolm X, you know, but I think about Lupe Garcia. I think about a John Boyd. I think about a Georgia Maryland Keep Siegel and a Miss Love who, you know, stood up against the Department of Agriculture because oftentimes people think of USDA as an agency, but it's not. It's a department with over 16 agencies. And if you don't know where to go and what to ask, you just kind of never get anywhere. You keep running into all of these, um, you know, closed doors. And those are the things that the organizations that I work with and that uh, my husband and I founded, you know, strive to overcome so that we can open those doors. And we were very, um, 
passionate. Dr. Boyd served on the National Hemp Association uh, Board of Directors for many years. And then when Virginia legalized uh, the growing of hemp, uh, we got a license and we've grown hemp and, you know, been a very strong advocate and even fighting for the farmers out in California um, when we learned that they couldn't apply for USDA programs. And to me, a farmer is a farmer. And if he's growing tomatoes or hemp or bell peppers, it's a commodity, it's a crop. And that crop should not change um, access to programs and funding. Not even a little bit, particularly post-2018 Farm Bill, when hemp and its derivatives, and even including THC derived from hemp, have been completely removed from the Controlled Substances Act. And of course, uh, we're dealing with that and, and hoping very much for the Safe Banking Act to pass. We're going to have to see what happens this election. And let me ask you this. Let's talk now then about uh, the Boyd Institute. What sort of services and resources uh, and and I, I don't think you folks provide any products, but you actually very well may. Please tell us about the Boyd Institute. The Boyd Institute was actually founded and it was at the St. Paul College in Lawrenceville, Virginia. And that HBCU has since been sold. And so Boyd Institute is now at home with the National Black Farmers Association. But they've had campuses at Denmark Tech and other universities, HBCUs and it revolves around providing more community development. So it really takes uh, some of our work outside of just agriculture. So it allows us to um, address other issues. And just recently, um, last year, we formed Minorities in Agriculture, MIA. You know, we figured if we're missing in action, you know, that's kind of uh, where it's been as I alluded to the uh, agriculture census, where it basically shows that agriculture over 99% is Caucasian. And that's just really not the case, um, but that is a voluntary census. You have to request to be counted. And you would think that the farmers of color who are already participating at USDA uh, would automatically be counted, but they're not they have to still fill in and send that in. And, you know, when you're looking at older farmers, the average age of an African-American farmer is over 60. You know, how many of them are going to go online and request it? How many of them are going to do um, some of these things? So we think that it's very systemic um, in this census as in other census collecting data, um, which really appropriates funding. is the basis for appropriating funding. And for any listeners who don't understand what that means, it's the basic for who's going to get money. Um, just outrageous. And so Boyd, uh, the Boyd Institute then is sort of a, a, a vehicle for these types of, of situations and circumstances. Yes. For the healing of them or the remediation of them. Yes, definitely. It takes us more into the, um, you know, the educational realm and also, like I said, community development. Dr. Boyd has been very um, fortunate in working with the Chrysler Foundation. We had the MBFA scholarship program, which was $100,000 for three years. And um, with that, we were able to fund students who were any degree um, ag related. Um, otherwise at a vocational community college, university, or graduate studies. And so those are the things that we really, really want to be able to do is invest 
um, not only in farmers, but future generations as well, um, so that we can see the longevity and the legacy um, that we carry. And let me ask you this, obviously we're in a COVID world. So where we used to gather for conferences, et cetera, personally in person, that's not happening right now as we, as we follow guidelines to, to curb and, and this, this pandemic and, and flatten that curve. Uh, of these organizations, are there any upcoming educational events that the public should know about that they could take advantage of? Yes, we will have the 30th annual MBFA conference it's scheduled to be held in North Carolina. We hope to have it in conjunction with the North Carolina State University. And it may be a little bit challenging. We may end up actually being here more so on our innovation campus. Uh, we're on a thousand acres right off of Lake Gaston um, in Southside, Virginia, the North Carolina-Virginia border off of Interstate 85. And so what we were thinking of doing is kind of like the Zoom meetings, but having those presenters still record, present, you know, have some Q&A um, and also with the vendors, the sponsors having their presentations available online as well and maybe having just a small select group um, that's otherwise going to be in person for the meetings um, or here at the farm. Making it work, as we say, bobbing and weaving and adapting uh, as nature does to our circumstances. Uh, we're going we're gonna to win this thing. I remain confident. Nobody's going to turn me around. Um, uh, we're going to win this thing, and it will certainly be because of people like you and your husband, Dr. Boyd. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to finally be meeting your acquaintance. Uh, may it be the first of many encounters and in uh, the multitude of nonprofit leadership roles that, like you, I also um, serve. It, it is just the most fulfilling, rewarding work and a purpose-driven life. I, I count my blessings all the time. I'm going to be very excited uh, as you are are able um, to be able to get your input, Dr. Boyd's input uh, and guidance in the many initiatives that, that are going on and that we are focusing on right now um, and, and far into the future. Agriculture is, you know, what to say, Kara, I, I say it oftentimes, if not for the top six inches of soil and rainfall, and farmers, we would all be dead. Uh, is there really anything more important than agriculture going on? Um, you know, it is, it's our basic survival. And I think that even though it doesn't make the news um, and there's so much that comes into our field of awareness through the media and whatnot, the reality is that the world is healing exponentially and we are gathering and uh, we are communing. We are empowering one another and there is a tremendous drumbeat being beaten um, and the world is getting better every day despite what we see. These transformative revolutionary times are a tremendous symptom and manifestation of that and we all just need to keep going. I cannot thank you enough for your leadership, uh, for your intelligence, for your integrity, for your commitment um, to organization and organizing people and for all of the issues that we've discussed and all that we haven't, Kara. Thank you so much for being with us on the show today. Thank you, and I hope that you guys will have me back sometime. 
I cannot wait to have you back. And listeners, please go to mjbulls.com so that you can see all of the different organizations that Kara and Dr. Boyd are involved in, the work they're doing, and how to join and participate and become a part of that. Until next time, Kara, sending you my highest. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Chicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.